I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jason Klom with the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. This week, we're not talking about a specific comedy album because uh, I am fortunate enough to have on the phone with me Sharna Halpern of uh, Improv Olympic. Well, pardon me. I.O. My apologies. But uh, a number of different things. Uh, Chicago comedy legend. Uh, thank you so much for doing the show. You're welcome. Now that the Olympic Committee heard you say Improv Olympic, they'll probably <laughs> sue you like they wanted to sue me. I know. I know. My God. Because when, when I lived in Chicago for the couple years I did, it was still allowed to be called that. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the history of the theater and your history in comedy. Because uh, I just, uh, you know, for those who don't know, you started uh, the IO Theater uh, with Del Close. But I don't know much more of the history than that. So I'd love to just hear it from you. Yeah, no, I, at first I was just doing a little game theater with David Shepard back in the early 80s, like 81, um, when, you know, improv was more like whose line is it anyway, just little games, sure. like that. And, and back then, if you weren't one of the six people on the main stage at Second City, you weren't performing. And so there were a bunch of us who took improv classes like me and, you know, Dan Castellaneta, from, who was the voice of Homer Simpson, and all kinds of wonderful people, and we had nowhere to play. Wow. So I thought, well, screw it. I'm just going to start my own little theater. Let's just do what we learned in our workshops, and let's just play. So Dan had a group, and I had a group, and a guy named Frank Farrell had a group called Improvised Shakespeare, and we started yeah. improvising, and I started training people in my living room, teaching them games so that we could all get different people competing in games. Holy cow. And, uh, and then to get publicity, because nobody cared, <laughs> nobody <laughs> came, um, I started uh, getting identity teams, you know, because I thought this way the press will write about me, and so I had a team of rabbis called the God Squad, and I had a team of <laughs> psychologists called Freudian Slippers, and, you know, it was all kind of free and silly and fun. You of know, course. Just, you know? And then I even got a team of media people, and they started writing about me because they were playing, and it was a lot of fun, and we all did a big um, benefit for the safety vests. That's how I got the media people to play. The police needed safety vests and couldn't afford them at the time, so we just did this big show. And um, so I, I got on the map that way, but then I was kind of, like, sick of the work because, you know, the work wasn't very good, and, you know, the rabbis couldn't play on Friday. There was always some kind of problem. Mm hmm so um, I decided to uh, try to figure out what could be next. I, I felt like there had to be something more than games, you know, for improvisation. <clears throat> and then I, I happened upon Del Close, and, uh, which is a crazy story in itself, which I'll tell you if you'd like to hear it. But Please. Basically, I, you know, asked him about improvisation and how I was tired of the games and he said that he was, too, and there was something he was working on in the 60s uh, called The Herald uh, with the committee. And uh, basically right now he was directing it at Second City, and Bernie Solomons was making millions and didn't feel like experimenting with improvisation. <laughs> and so he said, if you want to shut down your little game theater, I'll leave Second City, and we could change the face of improvisational comedy. And we oh, did. We, I shut down, and we created long-form improvisation, which is now being done all over the world. And that's what I wrote my book on, you know, the book comedy is based on Harold and the, the long form. 
Right. Oh my God. So your training was your training strictly Second City before all this, or no? Well, it was called Players Workshop of Second City. Okay. Okay. That's, that's what it was. But then I studied with Paul Stills, and then I studied with David Shepard, and then I studied with Del Close. So I worked with all the masters, um, and including Joe Forsberg, who ran Players Workshop, but she was fantastic too. So I worked with the best, you know. And then Dell just really opened our eyes. I mean, when I got Dell to teach one class. Um, I remember we were all we were all really you know good improvisers, so we thought you know, and I and I was like one of the best women I ever saw. So I just I just went in that classroom thinking, wait till he sees me. Uh-huh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and then we left in shock. <laughs> <laughs> he tore us apart. And, uh, you know, but that's where we learned everything. That's where we learned like to say yes to each other and to play off the top of our intelligence and to you know that the idea is to you know make each other look good and to, you know, weave each other's ideas together and and to, you know, listen and, you know, all these, he just really opened the secrets of the universe to us about what this really was. Why are you playing like little children? You look like mentally challenged adults. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, you know, if you're going to play children, be the smartest child you could possibly be. So, you know, he just, he just changed everything for us. He really did. Yeah, and the, the thing is, the ripples of what he's done and what you did together are uh, unavoidable. You you can see them unavoidably, but I think it, it, we're also at a point now where it is in so much of improv that it is you know it, it might be hard to to peg who's been taught by who because at this point so much of it is trickled down through these people who have taught other people who have taught other people. Um, but I, but everything you're talking about it, it is clear like this is stuff that you hear anybody who listens to an improv podcast. Most of those people are one way or another they owe it to to the I O. Um, you know, what's, what's the key difference if you can, if you can nail it down from what you do to say Second City? Well, Second City puts up a review. Mm -hmm. They tell you how to write a show and then to do that show every night for a year and try to keep it from getting stale, which is a good skill. I mean, a lot of my people, most of my people are hired by Second City. They usually come and take my best people. Um, and then they come back to me when they're done, because you can only do that for a certain amount of years without going out of your mind. Right. And they play on, on their off nights at, at I.O. because they, they're jonesing, you know, to improvise. But so so that's basically their thing. They're teaching you how to do a review, and they really want you to know already how to take the stage. They want you to know how to improvise. Um, so I think that's the difference. Our training is like the best training, and they know they're going to get the best people from I.O. That's why Saturday Night Live comes to I.O. Everyone knows that's, and and TV shows, you know, because you know uh, there was, um, I think it was the Conan O'Brien show. One of the head writers said to me, you know, it's just amazing. I, mean, I work with all these improvisers because it's all I owe. And somebody just has an inkling of an idea, and someone adds to that instantly, and then someone adds to that, and then before you know it, you have a piece. And he goes, it just it just blows me away how these people work together. And that's that's the way that we're trained at I O. Somebody doesn't say. Oh, I want Conan to see my idea. You know, mm-hmm. they're like, okay, if if Brian Stack thinks this is interesting, then I'm gonna he's he's brilliant. I'm gonna add to that idea. And then someone says, well, if Brian and John Glazer think that's interesting. Then I'm going to add to that idea because we respect each other. We treat each other as if we were geniuses, poets, and artists, and we have a better chance to become that if we teach each other that. If we treat each other that way, so um, that that's why people want to work with people from I.O. Yeah. But, People who treat each, treat them that way. Yeah. So people from you know they're getting jobs on T 
TV shows, writing, they're, they're in front of the camera, they're behind the camera, they're working all over the place, you know. And as you said, people are doing this all over the world. I go all over the world. I've been to China, I've been to Peru, you know, teaching the art of improvisation because they do want to learn from the main generation instead of somebody who learned from somebody who learned from somebody else who's sure. 15 generations away and it got watered down and lost, you know, because they never studied with us. Right. I feel like people are probably pretty spoiled after doing that, if only because a positive comedy environment is not the most common thing in the world, but that's a pretty positive environment. It's a wonderful environment, you know, because when you treat each other that way on stage, it can't help but flow off the stage, and people just adore each other here at I.O., and they take care of each other. And You know, somebody is is in the show, and people are seeing him, and then in the next night, that person is doing the lights for the newer kids, and that person's coaching them, and they're all helping each other, and it's Everyone, the bartenders, everyone, the backup people, they're all performers. Yeah. Everyone's doing everything at the theater. It's just wonderful. Oh, that's so good. I, the the first live uh, improv I ever saw was at I.O. back in oh, 2001, maybe? 2001 or 2002. I think I saw John Lutz, and I don't remember anybody else, but John Lutz I remember distinctly. Um <laughs> John was amazing, He and he still is. He's a very, very funny man. It's a funny story because... Back then, uh, we were doing a different kind of audition for Lauren Michaels. He was letting us do improv. Uh, we can't do that anymore because he finally said to me, that's not helpful to me. I need to see characters. I need to see the people can write. Right. But for a while, we were doing improv. And um, there was this one night, Lauren was in the audience, and, and we were ready to start the show. And the, I, I, I put the group together. And, you know, I have so many amazing people. I just somehow forgot about John Lutz. And John is amazing. It was just a total mistake on my part, you know, and then um, as the cast is backstage and the audience is seated and Lauren is seated and the lights are about to go down, Lutz runs up to me and he goes, please, can I play? I feel so ready. And I was like, oh my God, baby, I forgot about you. Yes, yes, go, hurry, hurry, get backstage. And he got behind the stage and just as the lights went up, you know, he comes out and that's the night he got hired. So it's like his life just turned on a dime that night, you know, it was so lucky that he had the guts to come up and beg me to play. That's and insane. I was glad he did because it was really just an oversight. I right. Told, you know, but uh, wow. and that, that happens. I mean, um, Cecily Strong was in my box office. She was running my box office. And I, what I do is to prepare for Lauren because um, he wants to see, like, the, the best 15 at I.O., the mm-hmm. best 15 people. And so what I have to do is because I have so many amazing people and I have to give everyone a chance I start months in advance, and every Monday night, what I'm doing right now is I'll see 15 people every Monday night for a few months, and then at the end, like around June, I decide who the best 15 are, so when he comes, usually in July, I'm, I'm done. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready for him. So at this, in this time, uh, as I said, Cecily was in the booth, and I just finished my auditions. <laughs> I was done. I had watched like five or six months of people. And I'm walking past the uh, box office, and I see Cecily, and I said, Cecily, and she was one of my top women. She was in the Deltones. It was a musical improv troupe. She was really funny. Mm-hmm. And I said, Cecily, why didn't you audition for me this season? And she said, well, I have some stuff, but it's not really enough yet, and I'll wait till next year. And I said, come upstairs. Let me see what you have. And I put somebody in the box office to replace her and took her up to my office. And she had really good short pieces, but they were... Um, very clear. Like, you could see what the character was, you could see the joke, mm-hmm. and, and that was enough. You know, some people keep going on and on, and it's like, come on, we get it, move on, you know? <laughs> so her audition was actually quite good, because it was 
such short little pieces. So I said, you're going up. And she was so scared. She was like, <laughs> no, because I don't think I'm ready. And I said, you are ready. You're going up. And I put her up and she got hired. Holy cow. That's, uh-huh. uh, that's a hell of an instinct to have, to know that somebody's basically not going to puke their guts out when they get up there. And, you, <laughs> you know, for, the, for this huge moment, you're like, no, screw it. Get up there. And then they just blow it out of the park. Wow. Well, I, I thought it was good. And there were some of the characters that you see on TV. You know, she did, um, you know, the girl at the party that you don't want to talk to. Uh-huh. She did a character, and she did a fat boy. We never saw that one on TV. Um, yeah, there was, I think there was one about a, a being on a ship that we did see on TV. So, you know, Vanessa, too. I mean, he likes the things that he could put on TV. Vanessa did her Miley Cyrus and um, <laughs> some other stuff that was really cute that I've seen. And, you know, it's... It's just great. It's wonderful to see them taking that next step. Yeah, my God. Is is there, other than, you know, the training aspect and the entertainment aspect, is there another philosophy behind long, long-form improv? Is there something else behind it that maybe we're not necessarily uh, privy to why it's so important to you? Well, yeah. I mean, Del, you know, when Del was on his deathbed, he said, tell them all that we succeeded in creating theater of the heart a theater where people cherish each other to succeed on stage. And that, that's what I always, it's the theater of the heart. So that's why people, you know, we make better people. People care about each other. People are helping each other. It, it's like you said, it's an amazing environment. And that kind of person you have to be when you get on stage. You kind of have to be saintly. Like you have to be caring. You know, everyone thinks improvisation is, oh, you got to be funny and witty. Right. You know, and it, that's just not what we're looking for. We're looking for real thinking, actually. You don't have to be fast and funny and witty. You have to be a good game player. You have to be able to listen and weave each other's ideas together. And, you know, it's kind of like watching the old bulls, you know, with like Mm -hmm. Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan, you know, just like the way they work together as a team. That's what makes you a good improviser. Yeah. My God. You know, I, I, I like to hear when there's a philosophy like that behind comedy because there are times when, by necessity, you you hear some very simplistic like well it's, we're just there for the laugh we're just there for this or it gets more cynical we're just there to make money we're just there to to fill seats blah 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 it is nice to know that behind that behind a lot of this and, and deep in its roots is something like that where there is an actual legitimate like I don't know heartfelt reason to do comedy it's it's good to but hear yes and we have something to say I mean we yeah. have our know, soapbox we need to have something to say. Or there's no reason to be up there. So it isn't about just getting the laugh. And you really can't worry about getting the laugh because, again, we get more than laughs. You know, Mm -hmm. when we're up on stage and somebody comes out and does something and gets a little laugh and then someone brings that move back 15 minutes later, they get a bigger laugh. And then someone ties it all up and connects the whole thing. At the end of the piece, the audience is cheering and screaming and stomping their feet. You know, so it, it really is like watching a big sporting event when there was a touchdown or something. People, like, cheer. So it's more than just getting a laugh. It's... Mm -hmm. It's uh, weaving everything together. Dell used to call us the master Sufi weavers uh, because when the uh, master weavers would weave their baskets and teach the apprentices to weave, if the apprentice made a mistake, the master weaver would weave the mistake into the pattern and make it a more sophisticated pattern. Mm-hmm. So we've learned that the master wastes nothing. Everything is used. Everything is woven together. So you just have to really listen and pay attention to each other and recycle Listen and remember, you don't have time to worry about being funny. You will be funny. That's the thing about this work. You'll be funny. It's funny if you do it right. Yeah. You know, it isn't funny when you try to be funny. 
one of my one of the things that is so clear about any but anytime I've heard anybody tell a story about Dell, it usually especially if they performed under him, uh, you know, or were trained by him. Uh, there is always that little. There's always at least some story about how intimidating he was, yeah, <laughs> if, if especially if you screwed up. Which you're, I mean, aren't, you're always going to screw up if you're a rookie. But I'm curious, was there an element of uh, he knew he had to be as hard as possible on everybody to get what was best for the group, or or is there something well, more actually, there? Actually, people were just afraid of Dell because Dell was a very nice teacher. Mm -hmm. I want to start with that. Yeah, and but everyone there was this myth about him that he was so scary that they were scared to death. You know, like we'd start a class and he'd go, "All right, let's have." He would talk for a little bit about what he wants to do, and he'd say, "Let's have oh seven people up on stage," and nobody would get up on stage. And he would sit there and he would like you know, you'd see him drumming his fingers on the table, and he'd go, "I can't help you if you don't get up on stage," you know. And then mm. you know he would be, uh, if if you did something wrong, he's gonna you know, yell at you and scream at you. He would tell a story that would have something to do with what you did wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. Unless you were actively being mean to people, then he would tear you a new asshole. But, <laughs> so, uh, otherwise, he was very, very nice. I remember uh, there was one player, and it was Matt Besser, actually, from UCB. And, you know, in Dell's classes, you would stay as long as you want until he said, I can teach you no more. So there were people who were with him for like a year or two, and then there were new people that were constantly being uh, shoveled into the class. Mm -hmm. Matt was on stage with a bunch of new people one day, and uh, I can't remember what was happening, but Dell stopped the piece and he said, Matt, I want to ask you a question. Do you think you're better than everyone on stage with you? And he said, yes. He goes, it shows. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he had a way of saying things, you know. Yeah. But there were, there were, I've seen him be really mean and scary, but it was when it was deserved. Like, I, I there was a famous story called Fuck Off Turkey, we call it. Somebody came to the class and he brought a friend. And Dell said something about, who is this? And he said, oh, it's my friend, he's visiting. And then Dell did the story about the fact that this theater is his church and that you don't bring people to the church without asking permission. Mm -hmm. And the kid just sat there, and so did the person who brought him and didn't do anything. And then he explained again through a beautiful story why you just don't. This isn't a show. This is a workshop. This is a temple, you know. And the person still didn't leave, and Del just walked over to him and went, Fuck off, Turkey! In this deep, scary <laughs> voice, you know. And like, you know, he tried. Yeah. He tried in a very calm beautiful poetic way to explain that he's not welcome and he still didn't move so he had to resort to fuck off turkey <laughs> so you know he's done things like that he he was scary but he was also brilliant and he yeah. also he wanted to help you he wanted to make you better i don't think he wasn't you know it, he he really was a great teacher that's why people stayed for years and years you know because mm -hmm. when you got a laugh out of him you felt like a million dollars, you know? Yeah, that's also what everybody says. Uh, <laughs> Dan, yeah. Dan Backadall's story when he came on was, was uh, roughly that, yeah, he he had, he had made Dell laugh and then uh, I think went up to him again after another class or something else, or maybe went up to him somewhere else and said, hey, Dell, thanks for this, thanks for that, and the, and that Dell sort of, not not meanly but at all, but just kind of blew him off just to be like, hey, don't, basically to tell him not to get a big head about it. Uh, I, I just, that to me is funny, though. That's also kind of great. I mean, you, 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 why would you want anybody to get a big head about it? They're not going to learn anything anymore. Right, exactly. It's like, okay, he had a good moment. Relax. Yeah, uh, you're right. gonna have 
moments too, you know. But uh, now everyone's got funny stories about Dell and scary stories about Dell. I got a million of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your, what would you say? What's the primary difference between yourself and Dell as teachers? Because I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not fortunate enough to have ever taken a class yeah. there. Well, you know, I'm totally trained by Dell. Yeah. I mean, the first year that I worked with him, I wasn't even really teaching. He was teaching, and then he said to me, "Okay, you've been in this class. You've seen what I do." with all the new people a million times, and I don't want to have to do this anymore. So I want you to take the new people first and make sure they can do all these things before they get to me. Okay. And and um, after watching him for so long, I kind of invoke him in my mind because I've seen his unusual way of fixing things, you know, so I'm, I'm really so much like Della because every time I think of, you know, well, how can I fix this thing? And first I think about what Sharna would do, and I go, no, I know Dell would do the opposite. Then <laughs> uh, I could come up with a very cool, unusual method. But I've been trained with him, you know, I've been with him for 19 years, so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probably less intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm I'm a lot like him in that I try to be funny, diffuse the situation, and I'm not afraid to say what's on my mind, and um, I'm not afraid to... Um, I don't want to say hurt someone's feelings. I, I I think it's our job to be truthful and honest, you know, not to coddle, not to coddle them. Everyone's, I've seen people, even my teachers, and I've had to yell at them, <laughs> uh, kind of lying to people in the very beginning. I, you know, they do something that is total chaos on stage, and they go, that was beautiful. And I go, no, don't, don't tell them what was beautiful. <laughs> they know it wasn't beautiful. You can feel it. You can feel it in your bones when it's not working. Yeah. Tell them it's not working and tell them why and fix it. You know, that's, that's the main thing. And that's what I think I'm good at. I can stop seeing and get it back on track and then let them continue because I don't like when teachers will stop a scene or wait till the scene finishes and then tell them why it's bad. Right. I want them to experience the success of, oh, I see why. Do you see what happened? Did you see why? Didn't that feel good now? Yes. That felt much better. And and then they leave and they succeeded and they remember why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's... you. It would be like uh, you know throwing a paper airplane before the whole thing was folded properly. You just you you've got to right. get it all right. Why not stop somebody right. before they fuck the whole thing up? Exactly, exactly. That's fair. Um, do you? I, I would love to hear the story of how you met Dell because you did say it was a little crazy. Okay. okay. Well, um, it uh, it was Halloween. I, again, I had planned. I knew I couldn't stand the way Improv Olympic was at the time. It wasn't I O at the time. It was still this game thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to seek out Dell Close. And I had heard that Dell was doing a show at an art gallery, and it was Halloween. And I thought, I'm going to go to this show at the uh, art gallery and see if I could talk to him. And I didn't realize at the time that Dell was a witch, or was a witch. Mm -hmm. So I walked in, and there he was with candles all around him, and the room was full of people, and he had his witch's robe on and his magic wand, and he was invoking these demons. Now, at that time... I was doing TM. I was learning how to meditate, and they tell you to white light yourself and protect yourself and not let demons in and stuff like that. So I was watching this, and I was horrified. I was like, the nervous man to invoke demons. So I stood out of the room and watched, and then it was over. I went up to him, and I totally forgot the reason that I was there. And mm-hmm. I said, hey, you had a lot of nerve invoking demons in front of all these people. <laughs> and he said, I protected the building. Oh and I said... God can't do that you know as if i know uh-huh. and yes i can and i was just like so angry he was such a mean bastard i just <laughs> walked out in the house and then i went back to my theater which was cross at the time and i 
I was like hitting myself in the head, like, what did I do? I blew it. I didn't even tell the guy hates me. And then someone said to me, you know what, Sharna, he's always high. He doesn't remember people. You'll see him again in, in a month or so, and he won't even remember you. And I was like, okay, that's good. That's good to know. So, um, and I knew he loves drugs, you know, stuff like that. So I saw him at Cross Currents about a month later. He was having coffee. There was a little cafe in our building. He was having coffee, and I walked up to him, and I figured, Okay, I'll, I'll entice him with some pot. So I said, hey, how'd you like to make 200 bucks in some pot? <laughs> he said, what do I got to do? And I said, just teach one class. I figured, well, I'll see what I can steal from him, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, huh, can I do anything I want? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I invoke demons? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, God. And I said, yeah, sure. I don't care. Just do something. And um, but then he taught a class, and this is the class I was telling you about that we were just blown away. He just opened our eyes to what improv really is. I mean, everything we thought we knew was wrong. And uh, afterwards, I was giving him a ride home, and I said, can we stop for some coffee? And he said, sure. And I, that's when I told him, I said, there's got to be something more for improvisation. And he said, well, maybe you're not a twit after all. <laughs> so I said, no, thanks, thanks a lot. And he <laughs> said, uh, you know, and then he told me about what he was working on, and he said, let's close down your little game theater and I will work with you and we'll, we will create long-form improvisation. And I was so excited. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And wow. that is what we did. So was it, it was it only an, a relatively untested concept for him at the time or what What was it? What was long-form? He thanked me on his deathbed for putting his dream on stage. It was, it was something he was experimenting with in the 60s and, uh, you know, it was basically unteachable and unplayable at the time. It was it just went on and on and on. Yeah. And um, then when we started working together, we took some of my games from the Improv Olympic and plugged them into this form. Okay. And one of my favorite games was called the Time Dash. Okay. And it was a three-part scene before, during, and after an event, like before twenty minutes. And I would get from the audience twenty minutes before the exorcism, during the exorcism, and. Uh, a day after, you know, whatever. And then we would do the, wow. take out the lights in between. That was an Improv Olympic game. Wow. So we decided, let's plug, let's make the base, the, the body of the hero three time dashes. Okay. And then around that, we'll do, we'll do some kind of monologue opening game just to get information. And that will be like where we figure out together what this piece is about, what our thesis statement is. And then we'll put in some of the other Improv Olympic games in the middle and between the scenes, like to kind of cleanse the palette. Mm-hmm. And then it'll end, you know, it'll come together and end together, and we'll weave things together. And then as, it got be- as we got better and better at it, we started making up our own games, just depending on whatever the suggestion was. So, um, you know, and then as we got better and better and better at it, we didn't even have to worry about the structure so much. We just knew it's a bunch of scenes, some are going to return, so they're going to connect. And, uh, you know, we just became, long form became the thing. Yeah. It's For, just a meta game that ate short form, basically. I mean, everything that you know about short form is still in long form. Right. What's What's amazing, though, is that you know, uh, after as many years as it's been around, for for something like that to go from concept to just this is how it's done is kind of not kind of it's it's amazing. It's it's a remarkable feat. Um, and I, again, like I said, you you see it rippling through all kinds of comedy now. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm a big, obviously, I make podcasts, so I like to listen to a lot of them. So you, you do hear, like, it, it's clear where that's reflected in, in, in a lot of improv comedy podcasts. Um, I don't know where I was going to go with that, except I did want to ask you, this is a weird one. Every, I want to thank yes. you for that. 
Is it silver Please. and true? And Baron's Barracudas with Dave Pasquese, I don't know if you heard of Dave. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, those were the pioneers. I mean, they would go up on stage for 50 or 60 minutes going, what, what the fuck are we supposed to do here? What's going <laughs> to happen? But they figured it out for us, you know, so it got easier for the next group to go, oh, that? Okay, yeah, I can do that. But for the first group, they were the pioneers, man. They were like, I'm not sure what's supposed to happen. Right, right. <laughs> you know? You know, sometimes it was great, which was it was enough to keep us going to try to get that again, and it would be a real long time before we could get it to happen again. <laughs> it was it was a profit, uh, big process, and you know, and and it still is. You know, that's why I like to travel to other countries because they're where we were like 25 years ago, mm. and you can see that they haven't figured it out. So I do like going there and kind of opening their eyes because it's really nice that people care about this all over the world. I mean, we were so underground, nobody cared at all. Mm-hmm. And then, then some people started hearing about long form and calling me like, how do you do this? And I'd be sitting on the phone for hours. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write a book. Yeah. Because part of these phone calls. So that's why I wrote Truth and Copy, which is basically Dell's um, teachings and how to do the Herald. And um, then that book just became like the Bible. And they, it's on college campuses and theater departments. You have to read it. My nephew was at NYU. He goes, we have to read your book. Amazing. People believe you're my aunt. Oh. So um, it's just. It's now. It's just everywhere. I mean, I just can't believe it's just everywhere. Everyone is doing it, and everyone loves it. It's just unbelievable. That's unbelievable to me, even more than the yeah. process of long form. That it has become this thing that everybody loves everywhere, and everyone's just, there's an improv club in almost every city now. And mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Yeah, God, I love that. That's what that that's catching on in in that particular way. Like it, that, you you must have translated the heart of everything into that book. Otherwise, people wouldn't you know bother teaching it if it was just you know. And the fact that the heart of that is is going to continue to remain. Do you think that that was so for those early students? Did they have a a concept of what they were getting into or how new and fresh these things were? Did they know that going into it? We knew we were inventing something. There goes my dog. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're fine. Inventing something. I don't think we knew what we were on the verge of creating here. We, I don't think we knew that it was going to be. I mean, we, you know, we were, we had eight people on stage, and we were lucky if we had more people than us in the audience. We would beg people to come in, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so happy to perform. So we never thought, oh, we're building an empire here. We're building a movement that everyone in the world is going to love improvisation because we couldn't even get the press to write about it. You oh, know? my God, yeah. So I don't think we even thought that that was going to happen. And maybe it's a good thing, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, that's why my business got to be so huge. I mean, I, I, I will talk at Northwestern. They ask me to come and do lectures, and they go, what was your business plan? And I'm like, I don't even know how to do a business plan. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was just that we loved something so much that we stuck with it, and we worked on it, and it just became better and better and better. I mean... It's the same thing with the people who became stars, like Amy Poehler. Yeah. You know, like she didn't come here saying I want to be a star. She just loved the work, and because of that, she got so good at it that she just rose to the top. Same thing with Tina and all the stars that came from here, and there've been a million. Right. It's just because they love the work. Yeah. That's uh, it, it's just so positive that when because the thing is it, it it's very hard especially you know I I live in Los Angeles so I get I get to see a mix of uh, that style of improv and sometimes maybe a little more of the cynical I'm just here to sell myself you see but it's usually dependent on the actor it's 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 on an actor by actor basis but you can kind of tell the people who are fully invested in the art form and those who aren't 
Um, right. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think even just creating that as a dichotomy and giving that as an, a, a, an option to people who might, through cynicism or whatever else, uh, give up on the heart of comedy. I think it's nice to have that codified. Uh, whether, well, I think you that's know? why Chicago is so wonderful. Because yes. The problem that even, you know, at iOS, it was hard to convince a lot of actors to to be that committed, to be that caring about the work mm-hmm. and not worry about themselves because yep. they wanted to get work and they were there because their agent said you should have I.O. on your resume. And so if they were on stage, you know, they had an agent in the audience and they wanted to be seen, you know. Where in Chicago, we don't have that many agents in the audience. So this yep. is all about getting good and it's the philosophies we talk about. And so they get to be so good that they are invested in the work and so they aren't that way when they're on stage. And, and I will tell you something that Lauren Michaels once said to me, and it was, the, and I told him this is the best thing you could have ever said to me. Uh, this was when we were still doing improv. I put up one of my shows for him, and this is a musical group. I have a group called the Deltones, and they were they were doing scenes, and then songs come out of the scenes, and you know they know Lauren's in the audience, and so this couple uh, did their little bit and their little song, and then the waitress came and she said something, and the guy picked her up and put her on the piano and said, you know, tell us about it, you know. Uh, they just handed the spotlight to each other so that they knew they had only a few minutes and everybody had to have their moment. And at the end of the night, Lauren said to me, you know, I see people in shows, and they're also desperate for the spotlight, to grab the spotlight from each other, so I'll see them. He goes, I have never seen a group of people hand each other the spotlight <laughs> like your people do. He goes, it's just unbelievable. I said, uh. you know, if you could ever say anything to me, that's the most important thing that you, I've ever heard you say. Because it's it's about how they care about each other. They don't seem desperate that way. You right. know, they they seem like caring players, which is what he's looking for. He wants people to care about each other, you know, and and have fun with each other and not screw each other over. Now, that, that's why people didn't like Joan Rivers at Second City. She was funny. Yeah. She would screw you over for a joke. <laughs> the famous Joan Rivers story where Dell was in a scene with her, and um, she initiated the fact that she wanted a divorce. So he just he decided he would play the distraught husband, you know, listening for the game move. And she he said, but honey, what about the children? And she said, we don't have any. You know, <laughs> got a big laugh, but he felt like a moron. What kind of a man doesn't know that he has no children? <laughs> Holy you know? shit. So when you're playing with someone like that, you don't feel safe. Right. That's why no one liked playing with her, because they knew she'll screw you over and make you look bad just so that she gets a laugh. And nobody wants to play with someone like that. Yeah, I mean, and if nothing else, that's a momentum killer, <laughs> if nothing else, you know. Yeah, wow. yeah. it's just kind of like, where do you go from there? It, it's um, you, you need to go on stage and feel safe. The yeah. people up there with you are your safety net, you know, and um, that's, that's how they feel at I.O. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and the safer you are, the more chances you're going to take, and the more chances you take, the more opportunities you yeah. have to be funny. Absolutely, absolutely, because we are risk takers. Yeah. You can do that. That's very good. You're very good. Do you know anything about? Have you been in improv classes? I've not really taken a ton of classes, but I, I'm self-taught um, for the most part. I've done a couple improv movies of my own, um, and I, I love it uh, when it's done well. <laughs> you know, and uh, I've, I, I think I was spoiled though. So the first improv I ever saw, like I said, was at I/O in Chicago, and then I moved out here and. The first time I saw improv, I was just so bored out of my skull. I just, oh, I, no. I, I was spoiled. I was very spoiled by, by Chicago. Never saw Beer Shark Mice out there at iOS? Uh, you know, I didn't. That's the thing. You know what? I didn't fall into iOS until way too late. And then uh, mostly I was there. Luckily, uh, the few few live episodes we've done of this podcast were at iOS. Um, oh, okay. So that, that was fortunate. 
Um, but because no, there's yeah. certain mice with Keckner and yes, uh, I know, Glenn and I know, Captain and oh my God, Pete Holney, funniest. I mean, painful laughter. You double over, and and you know what else you should see when you're out in L.A. Um, improvised Shakespeare. Yeah. I do need to see that actually. I, I for a long time I was a very bad lo- live comedy goer. Uh, I've been getting better at it. You will love that show, and you'll want to see it again and again. And it's it's running from my in my theater because Blaine has a few casts. It's been running at I.O. for like eighteen years, and all wow. I can do is keep adding shows because it just keeps selling out. It is so smart and so funny, and he's got the original cast out there in L.A. Mm-hmm. You have to see it. You go see it. Right. I'm telling you, you will. Um, you'll want to go all the time. It's you just laugh so hard and it's so smart and it's not really Shakespeare. Right. They just it's like five or six of the funniest men in the world dressed up in Shakespearean garb, improvising a two act play in the style of Shakespeare. But it is funny. Like it could be the bar mitzvah or whatever the suggestion is from the audience. Oh, it is killer. It is lo- absolutely amazing. I love it's that so, so much. So smart. So smart. Uh, I, you know, something I've always wondered because uh, I don't think I learned who Del Close was until, oh boy, uh, you know what? It honestly might have been sometime in college when I was watching the Ferris Bueller commentary and John Hughes taught me who Del Close was within a matter of seconds. Right. Um, right. And I know he didn't have a whole lot. Do you know, do you have a sense of how Del felt about his professional acting career beyond being a, a teacher and doing improv? Do you know? Oh, well, he loved it. Yeah. He loved acting, and he was very happy that I was allowing him to leave and do a play and yeah. leave and do a movie. But I said, it's very important that you do that. You know, you have to do all these things. And um, that one in particular, if you really watch closely in the Ferris Bueller one, he wrote Harold. They said you can write anything you want on the blackboard. That's right. Thing. Jesus. <laughs> written on the blackboard. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Dell wasn't doing acting when I first got him because Dell. When I first got him, when I first began with Dell, he was living in a horrible hovel across the street from Second City. It was roach infested. There was like hardly any water dripping. I mean, the place was just horrible. Oh. And he didn't have a phone. So oh my he God! He didn't have an agent. He didn't have any. He, he couldn't have a phone. And when I and when I first went to his house, I was like, "What? This is horrible. Why? Why are you living like this? Why don't you have a phone?" And he said, "Well." Because if I saw the president on TV and I wanted, I would get mad and I would call and threaten his life and I would go to jail. So I can't. <laughs> and then I'd say, and then he had a pot box there where all his pot was and he had money in there. I was like, why do you have all this money in here? Well, I can't have a bank account. I go, well, why? Well, because if I have my bank book in my pocket and I walk along the lake and I fall in the water, I won't be able to get my money. So, like, <laughs> he's a genius man, but it, it, he didn't know how to live on our planet. Yeah. So I, I had to, like, take him in shape and teach him, you know, I got him out of that apartment, I got him in a nice place across the street from me, and I finally said, I got him a phone, and I said, I promise, you know, but don't call the president, call me first, you know. <laughs> and then um, I I went with him to some affair, and this agent was there, and she said, oh, I, I would love Del to audition for something, can I, can I call you? And I said, yeah, so I was kind of like being his manager, and then they put him in a play called, the Williams Royan play, uh, can't take it with you uh-huh. and, and he was amazing he was like the big hero at the end and then everyone started wanting him and i started saying dell you have to now be responsible because i can't take this on too i mean mm. i was <laughs> so busy and i said you have to learn how to get somewhere 
I, I gave him an assistant uh, that would work with him once a week, like to make sure his clothes were clean and to go shopping with him and that you know he to drive him to auditions and stuff like that. But then he loved it. He started doing plays and he started getting movie roles and wow, he was having a blast. I thought it was fantastic. He, he loved it. He was very sad at the end because. You know, his smoking is what did him in. Uh-huh. He died of emphysema. But the, before he died, about a year before, he was offered the part of uh, in Death of a Salesman, which went to Broadway to play Willie Loman's brother. Oh, my but God. But there was a big wrestling scene, and he couldn't do it. Uh. He, just, he didn't have the strength. To, in fact, one of the last plays he did, he, he I can't remember the name of it, but he, he goes from being a wealthy man to a poor man who kind of walks across the stage in rags at the end of the play mm-hmm. and he couldn't even make it across the stage because his, his lungs were so bad so they gave him a shopping cart which worked for the character anyway mm-hmm. and he had to walk across the stage with the shopping cart which kind of you know aided him like a walker was yeah. but yeah, for him you know he couldn't he couldn't do it anymore and it was very he was heartbroken about that wow yeah but, i mean the it's just crazy though how much then uh, so a, a few months ago, I interviewed somebody. Uh, I interviewed the uh, widow of Von Meter, um, uh-huh. and she told a story. It, it, it's 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 long and it's complicated. Long story short, I was expecting to ha- uh, have uh, the the old story that Von Meter's life had been destroyed by JFK uh, being assassinated. I expected to hear that sort of turned uh-huh. around. Turns around. Turns out, no, it, it was exactly that. But but crazier, um, uh, very complicated story, and he was a person who was fortunate enough to have somebody take care of him for the rest of his life. Uh, but he didn't do anything with it. And to hear, I love the idea that all that somebody like Del Close, who has inspired and taught so many people, along with yourself, that you know <laughs> that you <laughs> the, the, these, yeah you did, and you had these common sense things that I think we. We've all maybe met one person like that in life who just can't get their shit together. But it's also nice to know that if they meet the right person, that right. person might be able to take care of it for them. And you know, you took on a lot, obviously. But yeah, but he was worth it because I had so much fun with him all the time. I mm-hmm. mean, we, I would just laugh and laugh, and you know, his house was like a library, you know, uh-huh. and um, which is why it was so hard to move him out of that hovel because. He had all these books. I said, everyone from Iowa is going to come. We're going to pack. You can oversee it. We're going to help you. But, uh, you know, I'd go to his house, and we'd talk about something. He'd say, well, you have to read this uh, if, you're good, if you want to know about that. But before you read that, you have to read this. And I would go <laughs> home every night with a stack of books, and it was just so wonderful. Uh, you know, it was just and not only would I laugh a lot and get high and have fun, but I would also <laughs> have all these great books to read. And he was always turning me on to you know, science fiction books and and he was always doing really cute things to me, too. Like um, when he was in the blob, you know, he ended up being the Antichrist uh, in that. So I was real proud of him in that. But we went to see the movie in the theater. And uh, I guess he, he asked them to give him some of the tentacles of the real blob. You know, uh-huh. when the movie was over. So um, we were in the movie theater, and the, we're watching the part where the people are running down, going down the sewer, uh, the manhole, trying to escape from the blob. And as they're going down, he starts sliding the blob tentacles down the side of my face. You know, <laughs> screams aloud the theater. And you know, he was always doing romantic things like that. <laughs> you know, always finding some way to uh, thrill me. And, you know, he bought me the original script of The Stand. I mean, he was just, wow. he was wonderful. You know, so he changed my life. I did, I did fix up his life, and I did help him. 
you know, I feel like they just dropped him off from another planet and said, here, we'll, we'll pick him up some other time and take care of him. I mean, I remember I thought, you know, his apartment was just, you know, full of mail and bugs and whatever when I first, before I moved him. And, uh, oh gosh, I think I lost my train of thought, but, um. Oh, it was just that, you know, you, you took care of him and in, in, in a way you were also saying that he took care of you in some way. So, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, that's uh, a delight. I I love that he failed at summoning demons and instead uh, summoned you somehow. That's kind of great. Sorry, go ahead. No, I said you're right. He did. (laughs) Um, This has been a delight, and there's a million things I could ask you, but I don't want to keep you forever. I will ask you how the rumor is always that uh, (laughs) that his skull is floating around. Is this true? Uh, well, I, I I have to go into another story, but yeah, yeah his, his, his skull is at the Goodman and his ashes are at I.O. Uh-huh. However, I did kind of, I mean, the truth of the matter is I tried, he, on his deathbed he said, you know, make this happen. I want to donate my skull to the Goodman Theater. I want to keep working. I'll be a skull in, you know, a, a desert scene or whatever. And it took a very, it was very, very hard to get someone to do it. Yeah. And it took a long time, and after a while, the morgue was, like, saying, you got to get this body out of here. So <laughs> I, I figured I have to find another way, and I took him to the crematorium. And um, I found a place called the Anatomical Chart Society that sells skulls and bones to med schools. And so I found a skull that I thought would work. Um, I'm telling the story of the truth now because I got away with the, tru- the, the lie for about 15 years. Uh-huh. And somebody, some reporter brought some doctor to see the skull at the Goodman Theater, and apparently there was a screw in the skull that was 60 years old. There was an autopsy, and what do I I'm very bad. And I didn't do this to pull a hoax out of No, anyone. of course. It was my partner's deathbed wish, and, you, you know, we're taught to make each other's uh, ideas come true. And that, was my, that was my teacher. That's what he wanted to have happen. So I had to find another way. So I bought this skull, and I waited months. I put it in my pantry because I read that it takes a long time to prepare a skull. And the coolest thing about this was all the press uh, heard that I was going to be giving the skull to, to Bob Falls at the Goodman at this big ceremony. And people were calling me going, who did this for you? How did you do it? And I said, you know what? I can't tell because these people say that they will lose their grants. You know, there's a mm-hmm. fine line with art and science. And I promised I wouldn't tell. And then the crematorium called me, and they said, you know, the press called to see if the body oh came with the head. Oh, my God. Oh, no, I'm such a bad liar. You know, I'm just so bad at this. And they said, well, we want you to know that we lied for you. And I said, what? <laughs> How I pulled it off. And they said, because we think you're doing a wonderful thing. That was a profound wish, and you're our, you're our client. So we told everyone that the head, the head was not with the body. So that's how I got away with it for a long time. <laughs> Crazy. And then I had this lovely ceremony, and I'm telling you, it was like a presidential news conference. There were millions of reporters and cameras and everything. And um, I gave the skull, I had it in a lucite box with red velvet underneath, <sighs> and Bob Falls opened it and took the skull in his hand, and it said, Alas, Pordell, I knew him, Horatio, and did the whole monologue. And uh, it was wonderful, and I got away with it for a long time until some asshole reporters <laughs> uh, told the truth. And then... Um, then we had another big uh, affair because the press wanted to see, to talk to me and Bob Falls about it. And uh, I felt like I had been, you know, I, the, the good thing is the New Yorker wrote a story saying, because he knew me and he, his name was Tad, and he said, I know why she did this. And he kind of stood up for me. And um, 
at the big affair where we were being questioned again, they said to Bob, because Bob Falls did not know. I mean, no one knew. I told no one. And they said, are you mad at Sharna, you know, for lying to you? And he grabbed me and he gave me a huge kiss. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, that is the skull of Del Close. I love it. And that was the end. I love it. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> the amount of work you went through shows all the love in the world anyway. It's just as good. It's just exactly. as good. Come on. It is Del. Come is. on. That's great. That's right. Exactly. Oh, that's a delight. Um, I don't want to take any more of your time. Uh, this is going to come out in a few weeks. Uh, is there anything you would like to promote and tell people where they can find you, where they can find IO? Uh, we have a big festival in August called the Bentwood Fest. It's Chicago's new festival. Mm -hmm. And um, come see IO. It's a beautiful place. And thank you for having me. Of course. I, I This has been a delight. You're welcome back anytime. Next time I'm in Chicago, maybe we'll have you on again if you're up for it because yeah. I think it would be fun. Yeah, um, I have a podcast studio in my basement. Perfect. Perfect. Uh -huh. Probably way right. nicer than mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you again uh, for being on the show, and thank everybody for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. This episode is also underwritten by $300 Data Recovery. Visit $300DataRecovery.com to get a quote on their highly recommended data recovery services. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Mm -hmm.